Good morning, CBC. How is everyone doing today? All right, good, good. Hope you all had a, a great week. Um, so today we are starting our Christmas series, uh, The Songs of Christmas. And if you're like me, you're probably thinking, okay, you know, we're in Christmas, Christmas time, and so we're probably going to do a Christmas series. We're going to go through the Christmas story once again. And so, you know, you're probably thinking, like, I've, I've heard it all. This is many years where I've, been, I've heard the Christmas story. But my hope in, during this time is that you would actually come before the story uh, with just a fresh new eyes, new, uh, just the open hearts, open ears to just be able to receive. And hopefully you'll be able to learn something new or be reminded of maybe like a new truth or a powerful promise that, that God has for you. And so as we go through the series, we're actually going to look through the Christmas story, looking at the different songs that are sung during this story, right? And so finding like a different perspective or looking at another perspective in the way in which we look at the Christmas story. So before, um, before I went to seminary um, to, to pursue ministry, uh, I used to work as a financial analyst at, in New York City. And so I used to work for Time, Inc. Uh, before they were acquired. I forgot what company acquired them, but, um, you know, they're the company that, that owns you know, Time Magazine, Life Magazine, People Magazine, right? And so, um, specifically, I was actually there. I was working for Time Magazine and Life Magazine. And at the time, Life Magazine, it's known for its photography, but they were putting these inserts into the, the weekend newspapers. And, and that was my job, was to kind of look through the, the revenue of how, how much they were making by putting those inserts in through advertising. And I remember I was working there for a year, and during that time, I decided, I was thinking, okay, I, I feel like I want to go to seminary. So I applied for seminaries, and I, and I got in to the seminary I wanted to, and then I was like, okay, I'm going to roll this fall, so I now need to resign from my, you know, from my job, and I need to tell my boss. And I was a little, like, scared to tell my boss because, I don't know, I think I was naive back then. I thought, like, if I left my job, I would put them in a bad place. But I was, like, an entry-level position. Like, what, how much was I contributing at that point? But I probably wasn't doing much. Uh, but I remember just feeling a little nervous, but I finally worked up the courage to go and tell my boss. And so I go and I knock on my boss's door, and I was like, hey, can we chat? And so he's like, yeah, come on in. And so I go, and I tell him that I'm resigning. I'm giving my two weeks notice. And he's like, okay, what, what's, what's next for you? And I say, I'm going to go to seminary, and I'm trying to pursue to, to be a pastor. And he was just really excited, and he was happy for me, and he was like, you know, this is awesome that you're pursuing a career or you're pursuing something that you're passionate about, that you really believe in. And so we had a good, nice chat and all of that, and then after we're done, like, he's like, okay, that, this is great, I wish you luck, and I'm about to leave, and then he stops me, and he says, hey, hey, hold on, I have a favor to ask of you. And I was like, oh, what's up? And he's like, could you put in a good word for me with the big man upstairs? And I was like, yeah, of course, yeah, I'm like, yeah, I'll pray for you, right? And so then he was like, yeah, th yeah, thanks a lot, you know, I really appreciate it. And then I go and I tell the rest of my coworkers that I'm going, I'm leaving the company, I'm going to go pursue, go to seminary and everything. And it was interesting because for them, the same comment came up. They would say like, hey, could you, could you pray for me? And because there's this thought that, you know, because I'm going to become a pastor, like I have a, a bigger pull with God or something, right? <laughs> But, but each time they would ask me, like, hey, can you pray for, for God's blessing for my life? And I'd say, sure, of course, you know, why not? And I realized what was interesting was that everyone wants 
God's favor and God's blessing upon their lives, right? We, don't we all want God's favor for our lives? And I believe, actually, what we find is, is that in the Christmas story, that we actually have God's favor. God's favor is already at hand when we see the Christmas story. And what it teaches us is that God's favor is for us to have. As we're journeying through the Christmas story, looking at it from various perspectives and looking at different songs, today we're going to actually look at it from the view of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And what we're going to learn is that God's favor rested on Mary, and Mary was able to live under that power and that authority. And we'll learn even more so, how can we also live under God's favor, as Mary did in our passage. So we're going to look in the passage in the Gospel of Luke. So if you can turn with me to Luke chapter 1. So if you have, have your Bibles, you can whip it out or whip out your phones. If not, you can go ahead and look up onto the screen. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38, and then we're going to skip over to verses 46 to 55. Okay. So let me read for us. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are, call, you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will, will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Now let's skip over to 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the, of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Okay, this is the word of God. To begin, um, I think it would be good to, to get a little bit um, more context and details about who, who this Mary is. Right? Usually when we think of Mary, we think of maybe someone who might be like in, in maybe in a college-aged woman, maybe like, in ni- like 19 or 20. Uh, but I was actually shocked to study this and find that Mary was likely around the age of 12 to 13 um, when she was engaged to be married. 
she was probably just hitting puberty at this time, and now she's engaged to be married, and she hears that she's going to have a baby through the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure a lot of us, you know, think about in the terms of just that as a 12-year-old, that's just a lot to take in. It's really hard for me to, marry, to, to imagine that Mary was 12 years old because my eldest daughter, Alyssa, just turned 12 a couple of weeks ago, and I can't even fathom the thought of her being engaged to be married or even thinking that she would get pregnant. Like, it just would blow my mind. I wouldn't think of that. But during this time, that was actually the social norm where young women, women who were um, just hitting puberty would actually be engaged to be married. What's crazy about the Christmas story is that God uses the ordinary to do an extraordinary thing. We, we look at Mary and we could say that she was just too young for God to use her, but yet God chooses this young woman to be part of one of the biggest moments in human history. The other part about Mary is that Mary was from a bad neighborhood. She was from um, the wrong side of the tracks of Nazareth. Nazareth was considered to be a town with a bad reputation, maybe for, I don't know, it's crime or, or maybe it's poverty, whatever it might be, but there was a bad reputation about it. And when we hear of that, when later in Scripture we find out that, you know, Jesus, people find out that Jesus was from Nazareth, and, and there's a person, Nathaniel says, you know, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Right? That was the actual sentiment when people heard uh, of that town. It's like uh, people hating on and saying, you know, Cerritos? Is there any good that can come out of Cerritos? Right? I'm playing, I'm playing. Right? We love Cerritos. That's why we drive such a long way from Irvine to come here every single week, right? But there was a sense that Nazareth was this ghetto place, right? All right. And so Mary was from that town, and yet God chooses a person from this town with a bad reputation to be used by God. Another thing about Mary was that we find that she was also poor. She, she didn't come from a wealthy family or a wealthy background. She was probably just getting by with her family. There's an instance later in Luke where Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple courts, and they're supposed to bring an offering of a lamb and a dove, but we find that they, actually, they, were, they were too poor to actually purchase those things, so they would actually bring two doves. So that was like an indication that they weren't a wealthy family. They didn't come from, uh, you know, a lot of money. So they were from this lowly background. But again, Jesus doesn't, dis- I mean, God doesn't discount them. But he uses Mary to be part of this amazing Christmas story. In all of this, God's favor is upon Mary. And we see how she's able to live it out. The angel declares that God has found favor upon Mary, and she responds in a way that her fa- the favor of God is fully realized, and it comes to fruition. And what we can learn from Mary is that how can we live like that? How can we live like that? And there's actually three things that allowed Mary to really fully realize and receive God's favor upon her life. The first characteristic that Mary had was that she, she knew her scriptures. It was Mary's knowledge of the word of God. How, how do we know that Mary knew her scriptures? Here's how. Look, look with me to verse 28. Here it says that the angel of the Lord goes to Mary and says, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. And Mary hears this, and for some reason it says that she's greatly troubled. That, that's kind of odd. Right? If, if an angel came to you and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, you'd probably be like excited to hear that. You would think, oh, wow, like I'm, I'm highly favored. This is maybe there's going to be good things that are going to come for me. I would be excited to hear that. But for some reason, Mary 
doesn't respond that way. She says that, it says that in the scriptures that she's greatly troubled. And the reason for that was because she knew that this greeting was associated with a great responsibility that would come. This greeting that God gives to Mary was actually only given to three other people in the Old Testament, to Moses, to Abraham, and to Gideon. And each of these people, he gives them this greeting, right? And then there's a command to do something miraculous, to do something amazing. And so Mary might have known this from her familiarity with the scriptures, to know that this greeting comes with a responsibility, comes with a calling. And so that's why she actually reacts the way that she did, because she knew that something big was going to happen. And I would argue that Mary was able to recognize this greeting because of her familiarity with the scriptures, because she knew her scriptures. How many of us can say that we know the scriptures to the point of deciphering this greeting the way that Mary did? What we learn from Mary is that for us to truly live into God's favor upon our lives, we need to actually be familiar with the scriptures as well. We need to know what God promises through the word, through the Bible, to understand the instructions, the commands that that God gives us to live a holy and righteous life. But not only that, as followers of God, that as we read the scriptures, that we can have to grow in our love and knowledge of God and grow in our relationship with God. I would say we live in a generation that probably knows the Bible the least. There was a survey done about Christians and their knowledge of Scripture. And in the survey, it says that more than 60% of Christians could not even name five of the Ten Commandments. Maybe you're probably thinking in your head, can I, can I name five? <laughs> in a Barna poll, it said 12% of Christians answered that they thought Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. <laughs> Another 25% of Christians believed that Sodom and Gomorrah were names of a husband and wife in the Bible. Kind of, you know, humorous, foolish stuff, but it just shows how many of us lack the knowledge of the Bible. If we're really honest about it, I have a feeling that many of us probably go through our weeks and never even touching our Bibles, never ever reading it. Maybe the only time that you look at the Bible is actually right now, on a Sunday morning when it's projected onto the screen and you get to read it. But otherwise, some of us, we don't know the last time that we actually read the Scriptures read it on our own, studied it for ourselves. But as Christians, it's imperative for us to know the Scriptures in the way that Mary knew her Scriptures. If you truly want to live under the power of God's favor, you need to know what's written in this book. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is from Joshua 1. When Joshua is called to be a leader of the Israelites, and he's supposed to take the baton from Moses, and he has all these doubts and these fears, right? But God, he reassures him and calls him to be courageous. And if you're like me, you might have memorized the verse Joshua 1.9, right? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go, right? We might actually recite that verse whenever we're feeling anxious or we're feeling stressed or we're feeling scared. We say that verse to us, to ourselves, over and over to give us confidence. But do you know what it says right before that famous verse? If we look at Joshua 1, 7 through 8, it says this, Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous 
and successful. See, God comforts Joshua that God, that God will be with him. But also God commands Joshua to be in the word, to know it, to meditate on it day and night. And that this practice will enable him to be prosperous and successful. Many of us want the favor of God to be upon our lives, but we don't want to follow through with this other aspect of reading his word, meditating on it. But for us as followers of Jesus, to know what's in this book is what will enable us to be able to live under the power and the favor of God. We need to know what the promises are there. What are the truths of the scriptures for our lives? And that's where Joshua's That's what God says to Joshua, if you do these things, then you will be prosperous, then you will be successful. And what we learn from Mary is that she knew the scriptures, so we also need to to know and learn from the scriptures as well. And when you begin to do that, you'll start living under God's favor for your life. That's the first thing that we learn from Mary. Here's the second character of Mary that we can learn from. Despite how crazy this all sounds, and probably even for Mary, Mary has this amazing faith to believe. Okay, imagine this situation once again. You're Mary, you're, you're about 13 years old, and an angel comes to you and says that God has favor upon your life and that you will conceive a boy. And it's not just any boy, it's a son of the Most High. And then Mary asks, how would this be possible? I'm still a virgin. And if you know anything about how reproduction works, right, there's no child if there's no, you know what, right? So Mary's asking the right question here. She's asking, you know, um, how would I conceive a boy if I'm a virgin, if I'm not doing any of that, I'm not married, right? And then the angel says, the Holy Spirit will fall upon you, give you an anointing to have a child, Again, if I was in this situation, if I heard this, I would say, you know, this is ridiculous. I can't, I can't even believe something like this. But what's crazy is that Mary actually believes. She believes in faith that this is something that could be possible. And so she responds in faith and she says that God can accomplish all these things. And then she sings in her song in verse 49, For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. And then in verse 51, He has perform mighty deeds with his arm. Mary responds in faith and just worships God, fully believing right, that God can do all things. Right? She had the faith to believe that God could, could really indeed move mountains if we just call on it to move. The angel leaves Mary with this final word. He says in verse 37, for no word from God will ever fail. Another translation is for nothing will be impossible with our God. So Mary had this faith knowing that God, with God's help, help, truly nothing is impossible with him. And she had that great kind of faith that really allowed her to live under the favor and the power of God. Billy Graham is considered one of the most famous and influential evangelists of our time. Right? In his lifetime, thousands upon thousands of people um, have been saved because of his ministry and because of his evangelism. And Billy Graham is known to be a, a man of faith, and he's fueled by this enormous faith and trust in God right, to do amazing things, that God can do amazing things. But Billy Graham actually tells a story in which he somewhat doubted God, and he lacked some, uh, some faith in his early stages of his ministry. And there was a situation in which he learned to, to actually figure out or find out that God can truly do the impossible. 
There was one trip that he was going on, and he was flying out to New Jersey, a great state, by the way, right, to, to do a weekend conference. And while he was at the conference, two men approached him, and they were asking him if he maybe would be willing to start a, like a national radio program where he can preach on this national radio show. And at first, Billy was like, you know, I don't think I have the time to, to commit to something like that. Uh, and he was like, you know, I don't just, I might not be able to, to fit that in, right? But the two people, the two men were really persistent, so they kept asking him, hey, please, can you, can you consider this? Can you consider this? And then finally, Billy's like, you know what, fine, I'll consider it. And, and so here's my, two condi- here's my condition. I will, in, the, in my conference, I will go and I'll, I'll put out a call. To, to start a ministry like this, this radio ministry. But in order for it to start, we need to raise money, and so we need to raise $25,000. And back then, $25,000 was a lot of money. Like, if you figure out in today's terms, it's probably closer to like a quarter of a million dollars. And so he picks that number because it's like a high enough number where it seems like it'd be a lot to, to consider, and maybe that would actually help it so it actually doesn't come to fruition. And so they, the two men, two men agreed to this proposition. And so finally, on the final night uh, of the conference, he goes and he, and he shares to the audience, and he shares, hey, we're thinking about starting this new ministry, this national radio program that, that I would be able to preach in. But we need to raise $25,000. And so go people then donate. They start donating cash. They start writing checks, right? Finally give it all in, and then they tally it all up, and they find out that it's $24,000. And so Billy's thinking, okay, well, we didn't hit that number, but we, we got close. And as he goes back to the hotel in New Jersey, the hotel receptionist goes, flags Billy down, and he's like, hey, uh, two letters came in for you. And he realized that these two letters had been postmarked from a few days earlier. So he goes and he opens it up, and he finds in the two letters two checks for $500. And in it, there's a letter, and it says, it was by two individuals that said, I had this prompting to just to send you a check for $500. I felt like God was telling me to do this, and then I sent it to this hotel that you're staying at. So, so Billy was just astounded because he realized he had told no one about this until that very night about this ministry, and yet these two men had the promptings to go and send him a check. And so they raised that $25,000. And Billy shares this because he realized, wow, God can indeed do the impossible. God can indeed do these miracles. And he shares that this was a pivotal moment for him where he grew in his faith. When we look at Mary, we find that Mary had that faith. She had that faith where she believed that all things can be accomplished through God. And she believed that God would be able to do all this that she had promised. And that's how she was able to live under the favor of God. That was the second thing. Here's the last thing that we learned from Mary that helped her live, to live under the favor of God. The last attribute that she had was that she had true humility. Mary was someone, again, who came from a humble background. But we see how she has true humility in the way that she responds to Gabriel. Right? After Gabriel had given her the plans of what was going to happen in her life, Mary responds with, may your word to me be fulfilled. Another way of saying, may your will be done, God. Again, imagine the situation here. Mary is 12 or 13, 
an angel appears before telling her these crazy things that are going to happen to her, that she's going to conceive and be pregnant with a son from the Holy Spirit, right? And she realizes that there's a huge burden and responsibility that's, that's upon her, right? And she must have realized, my old life is now gone. It's over. It's going to change dramatically from this point on. And she responds by saying, may your will be done, God. Mary was probably like any other woman at the time. She had her own goals, and maybe her goals were to just to get married, settle down, have a family, right? To live a long and peaceful life. Right? I think for many of us who were put, if we were put in Mary's shoes and get, God came to us with this huge calling, we might have been like, no, wait, hold up, hold up. I had my own plans. Like, this changes everything. I, I don't want to do this. But here, Mary, given this huge challenge, she responds, God, may your will be done. And then she goes on to sing of God's faithfulness to the humble in her songs of praise. Over and over again, she sings of God using the humble. How is humility defined in Scripture? The word humility is more clearly defined as being dependent upon God. That's how it's defined in Scripture, depend upon God. It's not when people think lowly of themselves or, like, talk bad about themselves, like, you know, I'm not good at anything, like, um, I'm such a loser, right? It's, it's, it's not like that, right? Because if anything, that's like a false humility, right? Because you, you compliment somebody and they're like, oh, no, no, I'm actually not, I'm not that good, right? But deep down, they're probably thinking, like, yeah, actually, I'm pretty good. Yeah, right? <laughs> I'll admit that that's, I, I did that, or I do that. But the real understanding of humility is when you fully depend on God for your life. You know, the hardest part about being humble is that we turn our attention away from ourselves, but onto God. For for most of us, we've gone through life thinking that our life revolves around ourselves. Everything is about me, me, me. But true humility is shifting your perspective off yourself and off your own pride and onto dependence upon God. When Mary says to the angel, may your will be done, God, she's shifting her perspective of life from herself and onto God. Rick Warren has this quote where he actually tries to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, but it was a, it's a really good quote. He says, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. True humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And to add to that statement, as you think of yourself less, you instead think about God more. So your dreams, your goals take a back seat to God's goals, God's call. And Mary did just that when she responds to God's call. She was truly humble. But not only that, she was in this posture that allowed her to fully depend upon God so that God's favor and power could break throughout in her life. Like I said before, Mary came from a truly humble background. She was poor. She was on the margins of society. She was a woman in this patriarchal world. She was considered to be maybe a weak child, and yet God uses Mary to be part of one of the greatest moments of human history, the sending of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. God chooses the humble to make history in the world. As you look all throughout Scripture, you find that God always uses the weak and the humble to shame the strong. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. 
God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. But are we in a posture of humility that allows God's favor to be upon us and for us to be used by him? Or do we hold on to our pride and think that we can do all these things with our own strength? I shared a a little bit about my journey to to CBC maybe a few weeks ago in in a sermon that I gave. Um, But I'm going to go ahead and share a little bit more today. Um, We moved out here to Southern California about two and a half years ago. um, And I will say the last two and a half years were probably some of the most humbling years for for me in my life. before that, before our move, um, I was, we were living out in the Seattle area, and I was serving at a church called Lighthouse Christian Church out in Bellevue, Washington. And, and back in 2019, um, I'd been serving at this church for about four years at the time as one of the associate pastors, and I was getting a lot of good feedback at the time. People were, like, complimenting me, encouraging me, and, and I realized I let a lot of that get to my head. Um, Right around this time, I was in talks with my senior pastor at my church to be promoted to be the executive pastor at the church, and I was going to be given a lot more responsibilities, right, and a lot more authority to make decisions. Um, I was going to be, you know, essentially like the, the right-hand man and, and right, to, to be able to do all these things. And, and in some ways, I was thinking, like, I was going to, I'm this, like, rising star, right? And it was fueling my pride, um, at the same time, uh, my name was being floated around a couple of churches in the area where t- a couple of churches were actually trying to recruit me to, to become their, their next lead pastor, their next senior pastor. And it, uh, one church actually literally wined and dined me, where one of the elders owned a restaurant and actually like, gave me everything on the menu to like, impress me, to try to recruit me to, to go and be their, their next lead pastor. And... Honestly, it felt a little awkward and weird, but at the same time, it felt really good to feel like you're really wanted. Um, but ultimately, I ended up declining those offers, and I accepted the position, the promotion to become the executive pastor at my church, and I felt like this is where God had called me. This is where I was you know, called to serve in, and so I, I, I went into that. But I just remember at the time, my head was just getting bigger and bigger. I was thinking like, oh man, I'm like this hot shot now. And then 2020 happens, and we all know what happens in 2020. COVID happens, a huge pandemic happens, huge disruption, and and everything changes. Um, And at the time, right, you know, companies became remote, or the remote working, and so there was an opportunity that we had. Uh, My wife's job became fully remote, and they allowed her to to really relocate wherever she wanted to go. And so we thought, oh, this would be, this is it. This is our opportunity to move down to Southern California. We had talked about one day moving to Southern California, and we were like, this is where we want to go, right? Our, some of our family is down there. Disneyland is there. So, like, if you know my wife, that, that's a huge important thing for our family. So we were like, let's pounce on this opportunity. Let's move. And so we moved. Unfortunately, I then had to step down from my role as executive pastor at Lighthouse. And then I wondered, okay, how easy would it be for me to find a job, to, to find a job there? And I remember foolishly thinking at the time, I was like, 
it'll be pretty easy, you know? And I thought so highly of myself, so I was thinking, you know what? Like, once people find out, churches find out that I'm available to go down there, they'll, they'll pick me up. They'll be, like, happy to, to have me, right? And I was in for a rude awakening. Um, in those two and a half years, I was searching and searching and searching for a ministry position, and each and every time, I was rejected, rejected. There were many times that I, I would thought I had a job, and at the last leg, I get rejected. There was one situation where I was applying for a senior pastor position uh, at a local church nearby. I went through like five interviews where the interviews lasted four hours long. Um, and I thought, after going through all of that, I was like, okay, I'm going to get this job. I'm going to get it. Only to find out, no. Nope, we're not going to extend you an offer. The next thing I go, I, I find out, I think, consider, okay, maybe I should become a church planner. And in, in, in the church world, church planning is considered like kind of like a glamorous thing. And so I thought, oh, yeah, maybe I could become a church planner. And so I go through the assessment for my denomination, the Evangelical Covenant, and it's a three-day intense assessment where they do like psyche valves, they do interviews, they do theological interviews, they do case studies and do all these things all day long for three days only to find out at the very end they say, hey, you're not church planning material. You get rejected. I go through a few other churches and I apply to them and then I find up rejected again. The straw that broke the camel's back was I was recommended to apply for an English ministry pastor position for a Korean American church. And I had an interview with one of the elders. And then the elder tells me, I don't think you qualify for this job since you haven't been in ministry for the last two years. And quite frankly, I don't think you're gonna I think you're gonna have a hard time going back into church ministry because you're not a pastor anymore. I heard that and I was like, I was crushed. A far cry from how I thought of myself a couple of years ago. Any sense of pride or confidence was obliterated at that point. And then my birthday came around in March this year, um, and it was my 40th birthday. Normally when my birthday comes around, I, I don't pay much mind, but um, the 40th, it, it hits differently. <laughs> and so I was in this midlife crisis. I looked at my life and I was like, man, I'm such a failure. Like, None of the career goals that I had, like that I, that I aspired to do as a young seminarian, like none of them have been accomplished. So I thought, man, I'm such a failure. I was just totally humbled in that moment. And I remember a few weeks later, I was around this time, I was talking with my eldest daughter, and we were just like joking and talking with one another. And she makes a comment of just in jest of like, oh, you're not a pastor anymore. And it just triggered something in me where I just started sobbing uncontrollably right in front of her. Like I couldn't, couldn't control it. I just was weeping. And like she felt horrible. She didn't realize what was. So she was like patting me on the back. I'm just, just crying. But I remember just crying and I thought to myself, I don't think God wants me to be a pastor anymore. I thought it was ironic that I would read all these articles of pastors leaving ministry because of burnout or, you know, 
bad situation, so there was a, a bunch of pastors leaving ministry, and churches needed pastors, and they were looking for pastors, but they couldn't find pastors. And here I was wanting to go back into ministry, but no church wanted me. And so later that night, after my sobbing incident, I just went before God and I said, God, I don't know what's going to happen, but whatever is in your will, let it be done. So I just surrendered my future, my dreams, my goals, my calling to God, and it was in that moment that I just felt totally humbled and just utterly dependent upon God. A month later from that moment, I was... um, connecting with Pastor Eric, and then I get a text from Pastor Eric, and he's like, hey, you free to meet up for lunch next week? And I was like, yeah, you know, it's been a while since we chatted and connected, so I was like, yeah, sure, let's, let's meet up. And then we go and we meet, and he's like, hey, there might be a possibility that CBC could hire you as one of the pastors. And I was like overjoyed and ecstatic. I was like, oh, yeah, like I would be honored and privileged if that opportunity ever came about. And he was like, I will let you know when, if that ever, if that happens, I will let you know. And then, of course, the rest is history, right? Now I'm here, um, able to, to be one of the pastors here at CBC. Um, and I still feel like I, I pinch myself right now and thinking that this, is, this has happened. It hasn't fully registered that, that I'm here at this moment. And I share this experience because I realized that even though the last two and a half years were so difficult and humbling for me, uh, it was necessary for me. Before I was blinded by my own pride, I thought I could do all things with my own strength and with my own talent. I thought it was some big hotshot. I was getting so prideful and big-headed, but I realized that I needed, for me to truly live into the favor of God, I needed to be humbled and brought down low to think of myself less and to fix my eyes upon Jesus and to trust in his faithfulness. You know, looking back, I'm grateful for all those doors being closed because if any of those opportunities came about, I knew I would have just, I would have accepted it. And I remember looking back at those situations, I realized a lot of them actually were not good fits for me and my family. They were actually maybe positions that it was just maybe unhealthy for me to, to go into. And so if they came about, I would have, would have taken it. But I realized that all throughout that situation, God was actually protecting me. God was actually orchestrating all those things for my good because he knew what was best for me. Because he knew that something else was going to come along. And that was CBC, to be able to be here with you all. And if I took one of those opportunities, I would have missed this opportunity. So I realized that God knew what was best for me and my family. And that's why things happened the way that they did. Because God had his favor for me. What we learn through Mary is that God's favor has come through Jesus Christ. We all live under the favor of God because we know that he sent us the greatest gift in human history, the sending of his son, Jesus And so knowing that we live in God's favor to fully live into and experience the power that comes with it, we need to follow what Mary did in this passage. We need to grow in our knowledge of scriptures to know what are the truth and the promises that are handed to us and given to us as God given to us. We need to grow in our faith in believing that with God all things are possible. Nothing is impossible with God. And to believe that God can accomplish all things in his power. 
And lastly, we need to grow in our humility and learn to trust God even more deeply with everything in our lives. It is in our weakness that we are made strong. If we can do all those three things, I believe you can truly live into God's favor for your life. And I'm not saying that God's favor means that life is all rainbows and butterflies, right? But instead that God's favor is having God's presence with you. We know that life isn't easy. We've experienced trials and tribulations. We've experienced setbacks. We, we have suffering. We have pain. We have all these difficulties. But when you live under the favor of God, you're in the best place you could ever be because you have God with you, God's presence along your life. God offers himself. God offers his presence, his favor for you. And he offers that to each of us this morning. And my hope is that you would actually live into that favor, into that promise. Would you pray with me?